Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. Today's episode focuses on how Bitcoin is changing the landscape of the financial services industry. Most Americans think of Bitcoin as an investment opportunity, but there is ample data that show Bitcoin is fast becoming a transaction platform to move money across borders, protect savings from inflation, and pay for services in many countries around the world. My guest today is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and author of Check Your Financial Privilege, Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. In his work, Alex has connected hundreds of dissidents and civil society groups with business leaders, technologists, journalists, philanthropists, policymakers, and artists to promote free and open societies. Check Your Financial Privilege is a captivating work that details how U.S. citizens, which make up just 4% of the world's population, have enormous financial privilege over the rest of the world, and how authoritarian regimes unfortunately use financial privilege to oppress their own people. In our discussion today, we will explore these topics and learn how Bitcoin is impacting financial privilege today and how it will possibly obliterate it in the future. Alex, great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, first of all, please share with us a little bit about the Human Rights Foundation. Sure. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit based out of New York City that was created about uh, 16, 17 years ago in 05, 06, launched by people who came from authoritarian countries, people who came from Venezuela, Russia, places around the world that didn't have the same kind of institutions as like, let's say, the United States or Europe, uh, places that don't have checks and balances on their leaders, that don't have a free press, that don't have an independent judiciary. These folks realized that there should be an organization that caters to their situation, their human rights crises that are that are just different from human rights crises elsewhere. Every country has a human rights crisis of different types. Every country has human rights violations. But in, in places like Japan or the United States or South Korea or Germany, citizens can mobilize and they can protest. They can create NGOs. They can sue the government. They can push back. They can they can seek reform in different ways. And they can they can change the government. They can change them through elections. They can change them through all kinds of different ways of applying pressure. In dictatorships in Cuba, China, Saudi Arabia, you know, there's really no way to do that. You know, civil society groups are, are illegal. You know, you can't go start an amnesty or a Greenpeace. The situation is just different. So, so the Human Rights Foundation was created to focus on helping people under authoritarian regimes with civil liberties like free expression, freedom of association, freedom uh, of and from religion, private property. We're, we're fighting human trafficking. You know, we're fighting arbitrary detainment, that sort of thing. So that's been my career for 15 years. Well, listen, I'm a huge fan of yours, particularly your work. Check your financial privilege. Share with the audience today a little bit about this term financial privilege. Help us understand it. Sure. So yeah, the book 
uh, check your financial privilege comes from several years of reporting and talking with people around the world who are dealing with broken monetary systems, basically. And I would say that there's a lot of different financial privilege in the world. Uh, the most financially privileged people are Americans. We are born into the world reserve currency. Everybody wants the dollar especially in times of crisis like right now. In, in the summer of 2022, there's a dollar shortage. Countries that run out of dollars are collapsing, like in Sri Lanka. We're seeing a similar dynamic or mechanism as we saw in the 1997 financial crisis in Asia. Uh, the dollar is sort of the most important international financial collateral. The treasury and the dollar itself are like the lifeblood of the world economy. And Americans are lucky enough to be sort of born into that system. So we can like go anywhere in the world and people will take our dollars and give us their local currency or goods and services, etc. We can print money to buy oil. We can print money to buy stuff. Most countries can't do that. The dollar, at least until recently, until only a few years ago, was pretty much the only currency that could buy oil. So every other government around the world had to convert its local currency into dollars to then buy oil as just an example of, of financial privilege at like the national level. And of course at the consumer level, that's meant the dollar has been, you know, has benefited enormously from people wanting to seek refuge and potential and prosperity in that system. Everything's downstream from there, right? The Euro is like slightly less great, right? The yen is slightly less great. The Canadian dollar slightly less great. Some people call it the Canadian peso now. Right, um, <laughs> right. He, he, um, the Australian dollar is slightly less great. So th there's a couple of other like kind of second tier currencies that are still considered reserve currencies, still considered good enough that other central banks would want to save in them, right? And again, that's like the pound, the euro, the Australian dollar, the Swiss franc, the Canadian dollar, the Japanese yen, like until recently. Those are currencies that like, if you went to the central bank of... Mexico and looked at their reserves, what they were saving as a nation, it would be some sort of composition of those currencies. Like they wouldn't be saving in the Brazilian or the Turkish currency, for example. The Chinese currency is something that still people are a little wor you know, worried about. But generally speaking, you have reserve currencies are kind of the next layer of privilege. Under well, the well how, did, how did we get here? I mean, I, f I find it you know, really fascinating when we talk about money and financials and you know all the things that go into this privilege that we enjoy as Americans. I mean, you point out in your book that we only represent 4% of the world's population, mm -hmm. yet we enjoy this tremendous privilege when it comes to printing money, buying oil, and, and other goods and services. So how did we get, take us back a little bit, how did mm -hmm. we get here? Sure. And, you know, again, like every other currency in the world is, is just much weaker than the ones I've outlined. And so you've got all these currencies that are inflating recklessly. I mean, 2 billion people live under double-digit inflation today. So there are all kinds of layers of financial privilege around the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, billions of people uh, are way less financially privileged than us. Like, it's really hard for them to use, you know, mobile banking services. They don't have the same infrastructure. They can't get the same rates on loans. Like, they can't get easy credit. Like, these are things that a lot of Americans might take for granted. Now, the system you know, didn't just happen in a free market way, I think is, is the thing that I've tried to cover in my book. And, and what's been really interesting to me is understanding the relationship between politics and economics. Like basically, you can't just study economics. It's political economy. 
you have to study political economy. You can't take the politics out of economics is the major lesson of the, of the 20th century when it comes to the evolution of the monetary system. Everything was driven by politics. So generally speaking, if we were to go back, the world kind of, let's say, agreed on gold as the most kind of valuable and accepted global currency. Like that took sort of thousands of years of consensus to form. And, you know, sure enough, you know, by the age of empires, you know, about 2000 years ago, you know, it was quite clear that, you know, it wasn't salt, it wasn't seashells, it was it was gold. Gold was going to be kind of like the bedrock. Gold was the most desired currency. So when kings would like mint their currency, like gold was the most valuable. They, they might also do silver or copper, but for kind of um, different scientific reasons, gold is, is kind of the most scarce and, and hardest to produce and hardest to copy. So it became the best monetary media. And, you know, that persisted, you know, all the way up through the Renaissance and Industrial Revolution. You know, at that point, you started seeing commerce uh, needing to be done at much bigger scales, right? So you started seeing people realize that gold itself was was not going to cut it, whether it be florins or, you know, different kinds of pounds or whatever. They weren't useful enough for to do international commerce and to settle like really large amounts. So you started having, you know, promises to pay gold, like in, in society. These are, you know, paper notes, right? So these became widely issued as the monetary media of the day. And at the time, the, the sort of the British Empire, as we got closer to the 1800s, 1900s, was the dominant financial empire in the world. It kind of defeated the, let's say, the Dutch when it came to that. And the British pound was the, the most trusted currency in the 19th century. All sort of things, all roads led to London, like when it came to finance, borrowing international currencies, like you wanted the pound. Problem is, these things don't last forever. And World War One really kind of ruined that for the British. This war, which didn't need to be fought and was completely pointless, ended up wrecking Europe. And in order to compete with Germany, which had decided to go off the gold standard, you know, again, these currencies were based on gold. Like the the, the world at the time had a, a money hierarchy where at the very top of the hierarchy was gold. And then Below that was, was, let's say, the British pound and then maybe the German mark. And then below that were like commercial bank deposits. And then you had credit and then derivatives. And, you know, it's, it's a hierarchy of money. What happened was to fight the war, the German and British governments decided to go off the gold standard and just print enormous amounts of money. So, you know, you started to see crazy inflation, crazy price inflation in both of these countries as they fought, as they just churned out monetary media to, to fight, to buy weapons, to produce arms, to clothe and feed soldiers, etc. And um, when the war finally ended, they were sort of reluctant to go back to the system. So there was kind of like a, a negotiated, what they called a gold exchange system. So like the Americans who kind of really rose to power at that time, didn't have their industries destroyed had a pretty good position of gold. There was a lot of gold inflows into the United States. They had lended a lot of money to the Europeans to help rebuild after that World War I. They ended up being in a really good position. And so you started to have this kind of gold exchange standard emerge where like people would use pounds or dollars internationally kind of like convertible to gold at a particular exchange rate. After World War II, this was like solidified into just the dollar. 
at the Bretton Woods Conference in New Hampshire in 1944. You had all the world's allied powers come together, 40 plus nations, to try and determine the fate of the world in terms of money and finance. And the British contingent led by John Maynard Keynes, he wanted the world to use the bank corps. So he wanted an internationally managed currency that all governments would participate in. But the U.S. government said, no, we want you all to use dollars. There were obviously reasons for that. And uh, it was hard for anyone to say no because the U.S. government was in such a prohibitively good position with regard to its gold standing and just economic power and the fact that even though it had fought and, and suffered a lot in World War II, its domestic infrastructure and supply chains were like intact. So it was hard to say no. They agreed. And from 44 to 71, the world was under, let's say, like what they call Bretton Woods one, like the sort of the Bretton Woods system. Bretton Woods one was um, all these foreign central banks around the world would save in dollars convertible to gold at $35 per ounce. And then like their own kind of fiat currencies would kind of fluctuate within like small bands against the dollar. So the very like evolution of the world from saving in gold to saving in dollars, from saving in an asset to saving in a liability was not some like free market phenomenon. It was very much a political phenomenon. It was decided as a result of war and negotiations. It was not just like, again, some people getting together and saying, oh, let's do this. No, it was it was very much coerced. There was a coercive element to it. And indeed, uh, the U.S. government actually betrayed that promise. In 1971, obviously in his fam famous speech, Richard Nixon went in front of the American people, gave the Nixon shock speech, explained that the U.S. government would no longer redeem dollars for gold. So this is basically like a rug pull. <laughs> like the whole world had been using dollars under the assumption that they could exchange those dollars at an exchange rate of $35 per ounce of gold. Nixon said, no, you can't do that anymore. So yeah, what's really funny about this, uh, I, yeah, go I gotta jump in on this one, but it's really funny about this because when we're in school, what we learned is, you know, that just sound bites. Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard, but there's never this deep understanding about the implications of that and why. And the other point that, you know, I, I know you're a, a history buff as well, mm -hmm. and uh, you probably read a little bit of philosophy in your time, Plato and and uh, Aristotle and the like. And um, what really strikes me about this quote unquote deal, which really wasn't a deal, it's one of the definitions of justice that we find in the Republic. The strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. And so essentially we just forced a solution yeah. that was to our benefit. And we're still living with that today. Yeah, with some changes. I mean, what, what you saw is that the Bretton Woods system worked well enough for a little while, but the US started to spend a lot more then its gold position could kind of defend in the 60s. You had the Vietnam War, and then you had the Great Society programs. So you had what they called guns and butter, right? And the rest of the world realized this, and they were like, wait a second, the U.S. government you know, can't really possibly pay us back or redeem all these notes that are floating for the gold. They, they, they saw the gold being drawn down. There was like a run on gold, basically. The Americans and Europeans, mainly the British, tried to fix the price of gold through something called the London Gold Pool in the 60s. And that collapsed in 68. And the British pound was, the sterling was forced to devalue like quite a bit. So people all of a sudden looked at the dollar and said, oh my God, what if that happened to the dollar? So you had de Gaulle, the French president, he was notorious. Like his government, his administration was like super anti-dollar. They called the dollar the exorbitant privilege. They were very kind of accusatory towards the US government's 
monetary policy. They were constantly redeeming their dollars for gold. <laughs> um, the damn French. Yeah, they just didn't trust us on that. And, you know, the, the, German, the West Germans also were skeptical, but the U.S. government basically, again, coerced them. They basically said, listen, if you want our troops to remain there, like, you got to, you know, save in, in dollars. We, we want you to do that. And these mechanisms were all in, in place until, until the Nixon shock. So Nixon shock happens, 71, due to just this, like, enormous new debt pile from Vietnam mainly. Ma- mainly it was Vietnam. Mainly it was Vietnam that, that bankrupted the United States. Nixon decides we can no longer uphold our promise to the world. We have to go off the gold standard. And the dollar starts to inflate a lot and devalue. So the dollar devalued against the German mark like by 50% over from like 1970 to 74. Like it, it just kind of collapsed. And Nixon and Kissinger, who Henry Kissinger was Nixon's sort of number two at the time. And he was basically, they got together and they were like, how can we fix this? Like, what can we do to like increase demand for the dollar and kind of cement the dollar at the, at the base of the world financial system? There was really a question at that time of whether it was going to be you know, continuing to be the bedrock. And they hired a bond salesman. They had to sell their debt. You know, that's the whole point. From Wall Street named William Simon, he became the treasury secretary. And they were looking around and they were like, well, who has a lot of money that could buy a lot of American debt? And ironically, given that we had just gone through the Yom Kippur War and when this whole sort of standoff with the Saudis and OPEC nations, the thing is they had all this excess capital. Like because the price of a barrel of oil had gone from $2 to $12, like after the Yom Kippur War, the Saudis and the OPEC nations had like hundreds of millions and, and even billions of, of excess, okay? And they didn't know what to do with it. So Simon goes off to Jeddah. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia comes to D.C. This is like all history. They went back and forth, and we negotiated something that, that would be called like the petrodollar pact. This was in 73 and 74. And this cemented really the, the dollar as the as the real bedrock for today's kind of global financial system, in my opinion, because it, it really linked the dollar to energy, the energy markets, which really are at the heart of the world economy. So after 74, as a result of this pact, there were two considerations on the American side and two considerations on the Saudi side. The Americans ag- agreed to arm the Saudis, to sell them weapons at a lower than market rate and to protect them. And we did. We continue to sell them weapons. We just sold them. Biden just sold $5 billion to Saudi and UAE uh, two days ago. Right. And look, I mean, you, you, you know, you can interpret geopolitics however you want. But clearly, one of the reasons we came to the rescue of Kuwait in the early 90s during the Gulf War was to, was to, help, Sa- was to help the Saudis who were worried, <laughs> you know, against an intruder, right? So we rescued them then. And then we rescued them as well a, f- a few decades later, arguably, in the 03 war. So we, we kind of have come to the Saudis' defense. We've never investigated the Saudis for their role in 9-11, and we've protected them. So we've, we've upheld our end of the bargain, despite the fact that the Saudis are like doing like horrific crimes in Yemen and murdering journalists like Khashoggi and torturing female prisoners and all this stuff. Like the, this U.S. government has been willing to look the other way to, to preserve this pact because the Saudis on their end have done two things. Number one, agree to price all the world's energy in dollars. So when anyone wants to buy oil from OPEC, which at the time in the 70s, it was 80% of all the world's oil um, and really dictated terms for the world, they only accepted dollars. So if you're like Malawi or Jamaica and you need oil because you don't have any oil, you have to import it for your country to survive, you had to go get dollars first. So you're starting to create these exchange pairs and you're starting to drive more demand for dollars. Okay. So 
then what would happen is that the Saudis would earn dollars, so they'd have dollar accounts. Okay, what do we do with the dollars? The second half of that of their of their side of the deal on the petrodollar pact was that they would reinvest, or they would call they would call it recycle, recycle the petrodollars back into the United States in the form of holding treasuries. So you'd have like billions of dollars of petrodollar earnings of dollars going into Saudi Arabia being then reinvested back into the U.S. system and allowing the United States to be exorbitant in its spending, really. I mean, you know, finance wars and social programs that it couldn't otherwise afford. That's the key. That's the absolute key. This system was so essential to the United States and the way that we expanded economically over the last few decades. Now, it's important to note that for about that first decade, it was it was definitely OPEC and the Saudis that were like buying these treasuries. The pact has remained, but it's changed a little bit because the price of oil cratered in the 80s. So the US government was like, crap, we need others to buy our debt. So that's when we shifted to Japan. And a lot of the whole, whole stuff about the Plaza Accords and the Louvre Accords and, and like the, the way that the Japanese economy transformed in, in the 80s and, and 90s and going to that lost decade was the fact that we were like kind of trying to force them to buy <laughs> our debt. And today, Japan has a trillion dollars of treasuries. We got Germany to buy and the EU to buy a lot of our debt. And then eventually after 01, we got China to buy a lot of our debt. China joining the WTO was really huge. And China accumulated, China's balance of US treasuries between like 04 and 2011 went from 200 billion to 1.3 trillion. So they were basically just selling stuff to Americans. And with the proceeds, it was a similar kind of phenomenon. They were like earning dollars. We were paying them dollars for all this stuff during that decade as we were offshoring everything to them. And then they were taking the earnings and they were investing it back into the American economy. So the petrodollar system that was started with the Saudis in, in, in the 70s has taken many forms, but essentially revolved around this idea of like other countries like selling us stuff, whether it be oil or computers or clothing or food or whatever. And we're paying for it in dollars that we can just print because we have the luxury of having the reserve currency of the world. Like we don't need to pay the Chinese in RMB. We pay it in dollars. Malawi has to pay China in RMB, right? So like each country has its own power dynamic, but we got to print our currency with a button basically, and we could pay everybody around the world in dollars. And then the kicker was that they would take those dollars and reinvest them back into our debt. So we got this like one, two punch. And that really allowed us to cement our power. And and the really interesting thing about that is that as a result of this, there were all these like extra dollars and treasuries floating around. And that's really what, what, what led to the expansion of the euro dollar system, which is now really what you'd call the financial system of the world. Euro dollars are dollars issued by banks outside of the control of the United States. So today there are way more euro dollars than dollars and, and they're not controlled by the Fed. No one really knows how much exists. Like the Fed used to have like an M, they used to try to calculate like M3 or whatever, which, which I guess would include them. But in, I think about 20 years ago, they stopped. They just didn't know how to do it. But there's just, let's say there's way more dollar denominated contracts outside the United States than there are inside. And that system was really juiced up by the petrodollar. So the petrodollar did a lot of things. It also like changed the way the United States economy worked. We went from being an economy that was 10% finance, basically what they would call like finance insurance, real estate to 20% today. So our economy has become much more kind of like financial services oriented as a result of this. And because our currency has been so strong, artificially strong, because everybody else needs dollars to do stuff. Even let's say they don't like the U.S. fundamentals. They're looking at this as an investment. Let's say they don't like the underlying fundamentals. It doesn't matter. They need dollars to buy oil and other crap. So yeah, I, th I think you're really getting to something that, you know, one of my questions yeah. is that 
you know, one of the things that I've always felt like that made the U.S. economy so powerful mm-hmm. is that if I'm an outsider, if I'm a foreigner, and I have one dollar of value, if I'm going to invest that dollar, the U.S. is going to be where I'm going to put my money. I'm not going to put it in India. I'm not going to put it in China. I'm really not going to put it in Europe either because they just don't perform that well. But it's the institutions that we have that I feel like kind of protect this position. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of aspects to American dominance that include our values, maybe not our execution and history, but like our, our values, like with regard to due process and, and our independent judiciary and private property and property rights and free expression. Th- these things are all things that are appealing to international business folks. Like they want, they want a trusted, credible, stable paradigm. They don't necessarily want the CCP's paradigm of opacity, secrecy, the fickle nature of the Chinese Communist Party is not necessarily something that investors want. So certainly that plays into it. But I guess what I've uncovered in my research is that the reason why the U.S. dollar is so dominant today, even though we, like, we are way smaller a percentage of the world economy than we used to be, we're only about 20% of the world economy, yet our currency is used for 60% of savings and 80-90% of all trade. Like that, that's crazy. Like that's not, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And only when you unpack it, you start to realize that it's because of these political decisions that were made by American policymakers. They made it this way. And that system, I think I would, I've argued in my book that we're kind of coming to the back nine of that system. Like that, that system is starting to deteriorate. It had a 50 year run and it's starting to come under stress. So just in the last year alone, you've seen other countries start to bulk at this. Now, there is still this moment, we have this dollar milkshake theory that some people love that basically states that when there are times of crisis, that that basically the dollar will like suck up all this value from other countries. Like Everybody wants the dollar, which is one reason sort of dovetailing with what you're saying. That being said, the dollar continues to lose purchasing power. We have 9.1% inflation as defined by the government right now. Over time, it's going to continue to lose purchasing power. And our allies are, are questioning our long-term financial health. Like the, the Israelis, for example, just sold a bunch of American debt and bought a bunch of Chinese debt. I don't think that's the, because they think that China is necessarily going to be anything great. They just are seeking a little bit of diversity. So I think what you're going to start seeing is you, you had an apex of American power toward, in the 90s before the EU, the euro was created, where like almost everything was done in the dollar. And that's just been on a decline. And now you're going to start to see India trade with Russia in rupees or rubles. You're going to start to see China trade with Saudi Arabia and RMB. These, these are things that are going to happen as we go into like a more multipolar world. It just is what it is. So I think what's interesting is you're going to start seeing like this moment fade a little bit. And that opens the door for some, some interesting possibilities in the future. And I guess one of the theses of my book essentially is that it's not going to be the RMB. It's not going to be the Chinese currency that's the next reserve currency. That's sort of Ray Dalio's thesis. I totally disagree. I think China's much more fragile than people think. And I think it's going to be Bitcoin. So I know that's like a shock to a lot of people. Well, that, I was going to say, that, <laughs> that's, that's my thesis. Yeah, this is, you know, this you know, dovetails really nicely into, you know, kind of how I think we should take the conversation. Mm-hmm. So why Bitcoin? What? Yeah. How, how is this helpful? How is the Human Rights Foundation? Yeah involved and why is this important to them well i think what's interesting is why it might be a really good reserve currency for the world is related to why the human rights community might want it and i think it has these qualities that our current monetary media just don't have and one way to look at it that i've kind of appreciated from studying the international uh, financial system 
is this idea of inside versus outside money, where inside money is is a liability of somebody else. Like a U.S. Treasury is inside money. It can be frozen or it can just be like not paid back by the U.S. government, right? A dollar can be frozen in any account around the world, right? Uh, as for any other fiat currency, right? These are all inside monies. Any digital money until 2009 on the internet was inside money. Somebody could freeze it until Bitcoin. Okay, enter Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is more similar to what we would call an outside money. And in traditional economics, outside money was really just gold. Like if I have gold, like in my backyard or whatever, it's called outside because it's like, it's, it's not a liability of somebody else. Okay, it's nobody's liability. It's just an asset. And nobody can control it but you. Nobody can control it but, but you. Somebody can, can come and take it from you. But then, then the ownership is, is moving, whether it be peacefully or not, is moving from your hands to theirs, right? So it's an asset. If you, look at a, if you look at a balance sheet and you do a balance sheet of a household or a company or anybody, gold's always going to be an asset, okay? Whereas dollars are an asset maybe for you, but they're a liability for the U.S. government. Gold's always an asset. And that's how you want, want to think about Bitcoin in the digital space. Bitcoin is the outside money for the internet. It's always an asset. It's nobody's liability. Every other cryptocurrency is a liability of somebody. So even like Ethereum or, of course, a central bank digital currency or Dogecoin or whatever, there's a small group of people that can change the rules on these things. That's not the case for Bitcoin. So it's much more like a gold. That, that's like one reason why I think it's really interesting for human rights activists is because it's like sovereign and why beyond can't people change the rules. That's a great question. It has to do with two things. In Bitcoin, instead of payment processing being done by like a visa or a company, or instead of like transactions being approved or not by a government agency, transactions are done through a global competition called Bitcoin mining. And mining is essentially people who line up to expend a huge amount of energy to compete to get paid Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin network, basically, they're kind of like security guards. You can think of miners like security guards. They can't control the Bitcoin network, but they can earn Bitcoin by spending electricity to secure the Bitcoin network. So right now, as we speak, there's like thousands of Bitcoin miners all around the world harnessing rivers, solar, gas, coal, all kinds of different energy sources, harnessing them and running basically this computer algorithm uh, that's part of the Bitcoin protocol. They're running the Bitcoin software. And they're searching for these like special numbers, which are really hard to find. Every 10 minutes, this is like a contest that like resets. And what happens here is that like the incentive structure is beautiful because like all these people that don't know each other are all competing essentially in a game. And every 10 minutes, one of these entities gets paid out. And that's called the block reward. And the block reward is composed of some transaction fees and then what's called like the block subsidy, which is like currently, which is the issuance in Bitcoin. Like where does the new Bitcoin come from? It comes from the software itself. So the software itself dictates that right now it's 6.25 every Bitcoin come into existence every 10 minutes. It started with Satoshi and their laptop back in 2009 with 50, or 50 Bitcoin coming in every 10 minutes. Now it's 6.25. That's eventually going to go to zero in the year 2140. And it's going to go down like sort of asymptotically. It's going and to then ha- what it's going to have. Then every 10 minutes, you're competing for the transaction fees. So when Alex sends Maury a Bitcoin transaction, we have to attach a bit of a fee. Currently, the fee market's pretty low. Like only like 2 to 3% of every Bitcoin block reward that's paid out to a miner are fees. But in the far future, it's going to be 
So over the coming decades, we're going to shift from like two, three, four, five, ten percent to like fifty percent, and then eventually it's going to be all fees. So we're going to be paying the miners, yeah. to validate our transaction. Yeah. Anytime I send a transaction to you, or a company in the future sends a Bitcoin transaction to someone else, they have to attach a fee, and there's a fee market, and miners will scoop up these requests into a basket, and they will try to perform some work on it, and whichever miner you know, performs the right amount of work as dictated by the network, the transactions that they scooped up get confirmed by the network. So this is just this ongoing process that happens every 10 minutes. And this is the way that the coin network processes transactions. And it's why there can be no censorship because it's a competition. There's no singular entity. There are going to be miners in one country that don't care. Like you, you, you could be a miner and say, I don't want to process Maury's transaction. Great. The other 9,999 miners are going to be happy to, especially if Mari pays extra. So you could even have like the U.S. government, let's say, or the Chinese government say, this Bitcoin address, we do not want to process these coins. They're tainted. They're problematic. Well, there's going to be some other country or some other jurisdiction or some other miner that doesn't care. And if that tainted entity is willing to do double the market price of the fee, they're going to go through right away. So you have this beautiful incentive structure where there can't be censorship. That's one of the reasons why a human rights activist might be interested in Bitcoin. No one can stop it. And I think why it makes sense as an international currency for the world. Because what the U.S. government has demonstrated in the last few months is that it's willing to freeze the reserves of other countries. So we, you know, Japan and the EU and the U.S. did this to Russia, which, you know, is part of war, right? But, you know, when G7 froze... $400 billion of Russian assets. Every other government around the world looked at that and said, hmm, I don't know about that. I'm not sure I want to hold all of my national savings in something that can be frozen by the U.S. and their allies if we do something they don't like. Right. Well, it's from our standpoint, it's a righteous cause. Sure. I think the two of us sitting here would agree that the Russian aggression in Ukraine is, is an awful thing. Horrible. However, there's unintended consequences When you have a policy. I'm just trying to be a realist here. Correct. You know, we need to admit and be open with ourselves that when the U.S. government decides to do this stuff, there are consequences. Right. Unintended. And just, well, I mean, I think that decision makers probably thought about this, but they chose to do it anyway. And in your term, it's working, meaning Russia is having a lot of problems right now with its economy. I mean, you know, people are pointing to the ruble being strong, but that's just a result of uh, exchange controls. Like the, the fact is that the Russian economy is doing very, very poorly. There's huge inflation and, and these sanctions do work, but they're kind of like when you have economic power, you spend it down, you can't get it back. Correct. So, so we're kind of like at this, you know, maybe 60%, 70% past in the life cycle of, let's say the, the dollar dominance, let's say something like that. And, you know, you got these other countries and they're going to try, try to diversify. It's interesting, though, because there's a paradox because I think ultimately all countries are going to be interested in, in having some Bitcoin, all companies, all individuals, all households, because of these unique assets and attributes that it has, like that it can't be frozen, it can't be demonetized, it can't be devalued. There's nothing else like that. Why, in the why, world. Can't, why can't we just make more Bitcoin? We can't make more Bitcoin because of the incentive structure that exists in the Bitcoin software. So currently, you have the miners that we discussed, correct? Okay, and they are the ones processing the transactions, but they don't control Bitcoin. Who controls Bitcoin are the users. You could think of it like this. I like to think of it like American politics. You have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, right? So you have the White House, 
you have the Senate and you have the Supreme Court. Okay. So the miners are the White House. They have the power. But the Senate and the Supreme Court can both overrule the White House. There's a balance of power, right? So in Bitcoin, the miners are the White House. The software developers are the Senate or the Supreme Court. They make the laws and rules. But ultimately, the users who run Bitcoin nodes at home, or let's say Bitcoin servers, they are the Supreme Court. So they get to decide what laws or rules are going to be valid or not. And they get to decide what blocks that the miners are trying to process get to be valid or not. Okay. So the users are the Supreme Court of Bitcoin. That is not the case in any other blockchain. It's certainly not the case in like a CBDC or central bank digital currency. There is no other monetary system where the users are in control, period. That's why it remains, again, very interesting for activists, but also I think for ultimately the world financial system is going to sort of trend towards it. Right. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with Great Minds Think Data and my guest, Alex Gladstein. We're talking about the macro level yeah. of Bitcoin. Let's get down to the micro level and where Bitcoin is impacting ordinary individuals in sure. really tough places to live. Yeah, well, I think its values are really obvious for people who live under like strict financial controls or who lack financial infrastructure. So, for example, you might live in Nigeria. If you are an American, it's very hard to send 100 bucks to Nigeria. You can't just snap your fingers and do it. There's no Venmo. There's no PayPal. <laughs> it's hard. Some of these companies that do provide financial services there are pulling out. So TransferWise is like pulling out of Nigeria. All kinds of reasons why this is the case. But again, with financial privilege, Americans, it's pretty easy for you to send money to your family, friends, to save, to get credit, et cetera, et cetera. It's not so easy for most of the world, right? It's harder. So a Nigerian sitting here in, let's say, the Bay Area, and they want to send 100 bucks to their family back home, it's really hard to do with a legacy financial system. It's just hard. This can be expensive, costly, could take days. There are some countries that's easier, right? So like Revolut might have partnerships with France where you can just do like an instant transfer. Cool. That's like super cheap. Western Union might have agreements in certain areas where it's actually easy. But in a lot of countries around the world, it's expensive to send a Western Union payment. And the person on the other end has to wait in a huge line to pick it up. There are all kinds of issues. Bitcoin is a revolution because it just kind of, it just obliterates this. It just, it just allows you to make a peer-to-peer -peer instant value transfer with someone on the other side. You don't have to ask for permission. You don't have to go through any sort of like compliance. It's just like, boom, it just goes. So it's a highly attractive system and technology to transfer value from A to B. So let's say you want to transfer 100 bucks to Nigeria, to Palestine, to China, to Indonesia, to, to Argentina. It doesn't care. It will do that in 10 minutes or so on the Bitcoin blockchain or instantly in seconds uh, on something called the Lightning Network. And that is going to be, I think, the, the financial foundation of the future. Like, it's an upgrade 
it, it just is better money than our current system. Our current system is so gate-kept, permissioned, exclusionary. I mean, if you think about the system and how you need to provide credentials to get a bank account, that just excludes billions of people right there. Okay, so for the people that we care about who live under dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, they're often excluded through no fault of their own. Cubans and Iranians are sanctioned because of the crimes of their rulers that they didn't commit, but they can use Bitcoin, right? So, so there's like some really interesting kind of political dynamics here that make it really, really valuable for people who are stuck in bad financial situations. You know, one of the things that you and I spent a lot of time talking about before our show today is how at my company, Premise, for the first half of the year, we had 85,000 transactions where we paid people in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, you know, one of the questions that, you know, we always wonder in our minds, and I think that, you know, we have some clarity around this, but I think that you can help out as well. When we send money mm-hmm. to people, let's stay with a Nigerian example. I send money to a Nigerian. Mm-hmm. What does he do with the Bitcoin? How does he use it in daily life? How does he off-ramp it into fiat? How does he buy goods and services? How's that working in today's world? And how do you see it transforming in the future? Yeah, there's a lot of ways. I mean, so first of all, Nigerian entrepreneurs have come up with like some really great apps. So one of them is called Send Cash. Send Cash is brilliant because it allows any Bitcoin user in the world to send value from, let's say, America. And then it, it settles like within minutes as Naira in the bank account in Nigeria. They use Bitcoin as the payment rail, but then they use their banking partnerships on their side to settle the Naira credit into the person's account. It is not possible to do this without Bitcoin, but the person on the other end doesn't even know what Bitcoin is. Right. So it's like plumbing. It can be financial plumbing of the future, okay, that can make it just easier to move money from A to B. But if you're doing it peer-to-peer or if someone is earning Bitcoin like through your platform and is actually getting Bitcoin and they're, they're actually custodying it themselves and they have it on their phone, there's a couple of different things they might do. The first thing they might do is sell it into local currency. So they can use Bitcoin ATMs, they can use peer-to-peer marketplaces, they can use exchanges like Binance or Paxful, et cetera, Coinbase. There's many different ways for someone to sell Bitcoin into local currency today, and it's just extremely liquid and easy to do in 24-7. Second thing they might do is save it. I mean, they might view it as a savings asset and save it for several years. The third thing they might do is like use it to, to buy something, to spend it, right? Now, there's two ways they might do that. One is through a service like BitRefill, with BitRefill, you can use your Bitcoin to buy like credits or gift cards with different services. So depending on what country you're in, it could be like everything from like Fortnite credits to mobile phone minutes to, um, uh, which by the way, mobile phone minutes are then like used as currency in Africa, right? So you could buy mobile phone minutes with your Bitcoin. You could buy uh, gift cards at Amazon or Starbucks. You could buy gasoline. Like there's all kinds of like things you could do through BitRef- services like BitRefill. And then there's also just like some merchants are just starting to accept it. Like it depends on where you are and Obviously, some places like El Salvador, it's kind of expedited. But like in general, like there are, you know, more and more merchants that accept Bitcoin. So the person in Nigeria might do any one of these things with the Bitcoin that you've just given them. And the fee was almost zero. And they got it right away. And they didn't have to wait, you know, days and, you know, suffer like delays, and red tape and pay a 10% fee to Western Union. Like it's just... For a lot of people, it's just obviously better way to move money from A to B. Yeah, this is, I think, fascinating to our listeners and to Americans because, you know, for us, you know, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, we have this privilege. It's very easy for us to make money, to spend money. It's very easy for me to Venmo you cash right now. 
all these are available to yeah, us. To dismiss Bitcoin. It's very easy to dismiss Bitcoin. Uh, correct. Yeah. Correct. But in this developing world, in places that are very tough, like Cuba, Iran, Nigeria, yeah. this, is a whole, this is a whole new industry that we're seeing being developed right in front of us. And, and it's not like... Look, I've interviewed a lot of people who use Bitcoin in these places, and it's not like a lot of them have any sort of ideological connection with Bitcoin or like that they're even that interested in like separating money from state or any of that stuff. No, for them, it's just like the best possible tool. Like everything else sucks and this is slightly better or this is the only thing that works. It's like a plan B. And, you know, for me over time, it's going to be obvious and evident to the people that much like email at the beginning was weird and like only available to some people. But like to those who understood it at the beginning, it was quite obvious that this was just a lot better than sending a piece of post in the mail. Like I'm just going to use email, right? It was just a kind of a blindingly obvious conclusion, right? And today we all use email and we kind of rarely use the post, let's say, you know, making assumptions, but like most people rarely use the post compared to email. Like the volume of your emails compared to your post is like 99 to one, right? So with Bitcoin, it's just, better it's similar it's it's basically like in the future you're going to want to use bitcoin because using like the old money system is like using the postal service that's the difference and 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 much like late 80s early 90s like only a small group of people are using email and i you know what i mean by that is i'm comparing it to bitcoin at that time only a small group of people used email it was kind of hard to use it was weird like that had a lot of skeptics. We well, had to find someone who had an email account. Yeah, you had I to. Mean, I like, remember. Do you have an email account? No. <laughs> like, so today it's similar. Like, do you have Bitcoin? Like most people are going to say no. You know, the users at premise from the data you showed me, I mean, a lot of them have used Bitcoin, which is really interesting. And, you know, that might be for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, maybe your average person, you know, we're still kind of early in Bitcoin. So, I mean, only 2 to 3% of the world has used it. So most people that you go up to and ask, like, probably haven't used it yet. But that's going to change, right? And and eventually it will be like, the question won't be, do you use email? It'll just right. be like, what's your email address? Right, exactly. So in five to 10 years, it's not going to, you're not going to have to ask, do you accept Bitcoin? Everybody's going to accept Bitcoin. Well, or maybe we'll start putting our wallet addresses on our business cards or, or however. Well, or we're going to have apps that may even still use things like the US dollar or the Japanese yen or whatever, but like that underneath are powered by Bitcoin. Correct. So you may not even need to know anything about Bitcoin in the same way that like, you don't have to know anything about TCP IP to understand how, how like the internet affects society. Like you don't need to know a line of code to understand that email is better than the post. You don't need to know a line of code to understand that Bitcoin is better than traditional money. That's pretty dramatic, Alex. You know, I think from our story here at Premise, when it comes to crypto and Bitcoin, we were having a lot of trouble arranging relationships, banking relationships with third parties mm-hmm. in developing world, Nigeria, Yemen, Syria, all those fun places. And <laughs> someone came to me and said, look, we might try to pay people in Bitcoin yeah. and integrate with the Coinbase wallet. Yeah. And my initial reaction to this is like, you know, if it's a payment, if people perceive it as value, yeah. they will accept it. And then they will figure out how to turn it into their benefit. And I think in our use case, that's exactly what's happened. And when you describe what's going on in Nigeria and other places, it seems like, you know, people are very industrious when it comes to money and payments and they figure out how to make it work for them. So I was watching Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on their, in the Berkshire Hathaway uh-huh. annual meeting. And, you know, I, w- I was struck by their opposition to Bitcoin. Yeah. 
So Warren Buffett is sitting right here with us. What mm-hmm. do you say to him? Well, I'll say to him that number one, Bitcoin has outperformed every investment he's made in the last 10 years. <laughs> I love it. That's just sort of the first thing he'd have to like grapple with. Now he may call it a bubble or beyond his comprehension or whatever, but that's the facts. That's the facts. You know, number two, I would say that Warren Buffett has got a lot of financial privilege. Like he doesn't need to worry about his bank account getting frozen because he disagrees with his government, which I'm sure he does a lot. He doesn't have to worry about sending money to his family in a different city because it's easy because he probably has someone do it for him. But like, even if he doesn't, he can use Venmo or PayPal or whatever. And it just sort of works. That's not the case around the world. We're like part of a very small, tiny percentage of the world's people where money is not a problem. And you know what? That's vanishing even as the status quo. 9.1% inflation in the United States, like money's a problem for Americans right now. Um, Maybe not for Warren Buffett, who's found ways to plow money into Chevron and stuff like that. The wealthy always do okay during inflationary periods, even in hyperinflation. I had friends from Venezuela, and they were telling me that, you know, where it was a disaster for almost everybody, the super wealthy would just take out loans from the Bank of Venezuela and then buy property in Miami and then watch the loan disappear in value. <laughs> like, so, like, people like Buffett can always survive, but, like, what they're not empathizing with is the plight of the average person who is, like, suffering big time against things like inflation. And, you know, in other countries, that's really aggressive. Again, there's, like, 2 billion people out there dealing with double-digit inflation, and, you know, over the last two years, Bitcoin has gone from something like eight, nine thousand dollars to twenty three, twenty four thousand dollars. And I know there's been ups and downs, but that's like a big deal for people whose local currencies have gone down by fifty or you know, by fifty, sixty, seventy percent in that time. Like Cubans, for example, have lost uh, almost eighty percent of their purchasing power in that time. Well, if they had been in Bitcoin, they'd be up, right? That's a life saving difference, right? And you know what? Maybe they're they're only down whatever it is, 10, 20% if they had stayed in dollars, but like, that's not, how are they going to get dollars? Like dollars are very hard to get in a lot of countries. Now, stable coins are another part of the crypto conversation that are important because it does allow people from other countries to get dollar assets, like virtual dollars, basically. And I think it's great to support stable coins and to integrate stable coins and to have them as an option. I mean, I think ideally for the near future, five, 10 years, what companies should try to aim to do is to integrate and connect with both stable coins and Bitcoin. And that allows them to basically connect to this global economy and pay or receive or do business in two currencies that the world wants, like dollars, which are the dominant currency in the whole world. And the best sort of checking account for most everybody in the world is the dollar. So this allows you to, to connect and reach people with dollars, even though they may not have a bank account. They don't need one to have Tether or USDC on their phone, okay? And Bitcoin, which is, you know, the best savings instrument in the last 10 years in the world, the best investment in the world in the last 10 years. So this this allows you to get, like, both that kind of long-term savings instrument plus, like, sort of a, the best fiat money. So I think that, like, you know, fintech companies and just companies that do business internationally, regardless of their industry, should sort of seek to start integrating you know, stablecoin payments and, and Bitcoin payments. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we're very aware of here in the U.S. is the importance of freedom. Mm-hmm. It's what we fight for on a day-to-day basis, rightly or wrongly. How can U.S. companies, in your opinion, help spread financial freedom? Well, in my opinion, it would be, you know, again, kind of following in these footsteps, like 
looking at Bitcoin, exploring Bitcoin, integrating Bitcoin, allowing people to get paid in Bitcoin. I know nonprofits and companies that, you know, such as yours, yourselves, I mean, that, 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 you know, allow users of the platform or product or clients to pay in or receive payment in Bitcoin. That's a huge step towards financial freedom because it levels the playing field for everybody. I mean, it's, it, you don't have to do a lot of like homework or research or talk to different companies to figure out how to get money from A to B in the Bitcoin system. It just works. It just goes A to B. (laughs) One Bitcoin wallet can send to any other Bitcoin wallet, no matter where it is. It could be in like Antarctica or Siberia. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Like as long as there's an internet connection, it works. You don't need to go through all these hoops and research and figure out like what's the best way of doing it and pay all these middlemen. And that's in the past. That's just a, that's going to be in the history books on the trash heap of history, this world where like you have to do all this work to get value from A to B. Today, it's just been completely revolutionized and we can just connect peer to peer instantly. And that, that's a really, really big deal. So by doing that, by allowing your customers or users or whatever to connect to this open and neutral financial network, I think you, you give them a lot of freedom. Because I mean, again, Bitcoin is, is ownable. Like it's not like like if you pay somebody in dollars, like they have some dollar bank account, like in Ethiopia or Australia or whatever, that's not theirs. That's the, the bank's money. And they can withdraw it into paper currency. And then it's like kind of almost theirs. But even still in a lot of these countries, you see demonetizations, you see hyperinflation, stuff like that. With Bitcoin, it's theirs. Like it's just straight up theirs. Like they can earn Bitcoin from premise or some other company, and then they can withdraw it to their wallet and they could be total sovereign owners of that. And that, that, is, that is giving people financial freedom. Can you share with us the difference between having a Coinbase account, mm-hmm. a Robinhood account that yeah. holds Bitcoin, and just a, a bang it up straight up wallet? Yeah, well, again, if you want to be a first class self-sovereign Bitcoin user, you want to own your own Bitcoin. So if you send Coinbase or Robinhood or Cash App some money, and they credit you with Bitcoin and it's on your little screen and it says you have so much Bitcoin in your Coinbase or your Cash App or Robinhood account, what you have is a promise to pay Bitcoin. So it's similar to like having a paper note that's redeemable for gold. So you haven't actually bought the gold. You've just bought a promise to pay the gold. So that's sitting there in your account. And, you know, ultimately that's just a credit. That's a liability. What you want to do is convert that into an asset on your own personal balance sheet or corporate balance sheet by redeeming it into Bitcoin. So you want to withdraw that Bitcoin, which is on your little screen as a credit, you want to withdraw it to a wallet that you control. And that might be what we call a hot wallet or a phone wallet, which is a mobile app like, for example, the Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N, to use. The Moon Wallet is an open source wallet. You download it anywhere in the world and you can just set it up instantly and you can just click receive and you can paste in the address from Cash App or Coinbase and the Bitcoin's going to go to your control. And then you now are the sovereign owner of that Bitcoin. And we say in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins, because if you don't actually control the keys, if you don't control the, what we say, the, the private key, if you, if you don't control the password to your Bitcoin, if you don't actually have it on your phone or on a hardware device or on your computer or wherever, you don't control it. You just have a promise to pay. And this is what makes Bitcoin different is that people can actually have real financial freedom. They can actually have private property in, in a world where private property, you know, is really up to, in many cases is really up to the standards of the government that's offering it. 
like private property really comes down to like, is the government going to protect your private property? You know, are they going to, are they going to value your claim on this house or this car or whatever? It's up to the rule of law. You know, Bitcoin doesn't care about the rule of law. It's math. It's like the only person that can use or spend a particular amount of Bitcoin is the person or entity that has the password. That's it. It's just math. And it's such a big upgrade for private property. I mean, it gives the idea of private property to anybody in the world. I mean, that's a, that's a profoundly, you know, American thing. It's also a profoundly transformative thing. So you don't want to keep your Bitcoin on your Coinbase wallet. I mean, it might be useful as like an earning mechanism. So you earn into it and you've got to think of that kind of like your bank account. Okay. But then you're going to want to withdraw that into cash, into digital gold. So you want, you're going to want to own that Bitcoin. And then maybe you make that decision to save it, which is, is I think, a great long-term decision. Or maybe you just make, maybe you make the decision to later exchange it for some local currency, maybe spend it to buy something. That's fine. But really, you want to be your own bank. I mean, that's really what Bitcoin gives you the ability to be. Like, we, we're kind of like, we're not going to get rid of banks. Banks are going to change and banks are going to adapt to this. But like, for the basic purposes of finance, you won't need a bank anymore. You'll be able to... I think within two, three years, like today you can, you can just, you, you can earn, save and spend without a third party financial institution using Bitcoin. But I think soon you'll also be able to convert to other currencies, perform FX essentially. You'll be able to earn interest or yield on your Bitcoin and you'll be able to borrow using your Bitcoin as collateral. So you'll be able to achieve credit. So I think that like the dream is that everybody in the world, no matter whether they're in Cuba or Niger or Malaysia or wherever, they'll be able to download a free open source Bitcoin wallet, receive a little bit of value from your company or anywhere else, and then have access to the basic suite of financial services that make us financially free. Savings, spend, receive, interest, credit, all of it. That's coming. And that's very exciting. Thank you, Alex. I got one last question mm -hmm. for you. And, you know, this is, this is a tough one. I, I didn't give you a chance to prepare for this one. Can you give me three insights that you would leave the world if you were gone tomorrow? Three insights. Okay. Number one, the money that we use on a daily basis is transforming from an instrument of freedom to an instrument of control. Number two, children born today will not use paper or metal money. Everything will be digital. And number three... The world would be a pretty scary place if we didn't have Bitcoin. If we didn't have digital cash and digital gold, we would be completely vulnerable to the Orwellian surveillance state as well as to the ever-bankrupt policies of, of governments that are just going to continue to eat into your savings by inflating their monetary supply to compensate for their inadequate you know, behavior, essentially. So you're going to continue to see what we've seen for thousands of years. You're going to continue to see control and surveillance and exploitation. And I don't know if there'd be a way out of that, but now we do. We have a digital way for people to be free, and that's pretty cool. So that's why I'm, I'm super into Bitcoin. Thank you, Alex. We hope to have you back again soon. My pleasure. Thank you.